Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. Last week, close to my home, was the Transition Design Symposium. It brought together people from around the world interested in what design can bring to the need for an urgent societal transition. And for two days, its attendees basked in glorious sunshine and fascinating interactions. I managed to catch up with Michelle Bowens, who was attending and speaking at the conference, and we took some time for a short chat, sitting under a tree in the sunshine. Michel spends half his time in Belgium and half in Thailand, and is the founder of the Peer-to-Peer Foundation, a global organisation of researchers working in collaboration to explore peer production, governance and property. He is a writer, researcher and speaker on the subjects of technology, culture and business innovation. It's about open source communities, he told me. A lot of it is like what you were doing with Transition. Perhaps a bit of a difference would be that I try to look more at the translocal, transnational levels and how we can build counterpower to transnational capital. So, I started by asking him, when he uses those terms, translocal and transnational, what does he mean? So if you do permaculture, in one way it's very local, you know, you're thinking like I'm doing something here right now. At the same time, the learning of permaculture is really global. People are connecting globally around permaculture. And so one permaculture may not be significant, but 5,000 in the world, you're actually doing something about the global structure. Um, But the difference, I think, is you can use a global to support the local. And I see the global as its own arena. We, we need something like the guilds in the Middle Ages. We need leagues of cities. We need leagues of co-op. You know, we need... You, if you have Fukushima, you can't just say, you know, I'm going to have a fishing co-op in my village. You, you need, sometimes you need scale to answer certain issues that can be solved at any local level. Okay. And in terms of the imagination and what I was talking about yesterday, how do you see the work that you do impacting the imagination and the invitation to the imagination and how do you, what's your sense of the, the state of health of the imagination in the world that you're trying to bring these ideas right. to? What's, what, what are the challenges that, that, that you see around that? Uh, well, you know, one, one of the things where we're stuck in our imagination is uh, that we see the private and the public as a dichotomy and we see civil society as some kind of leftover you know when you come home tired and once you bring in the commons you go from already from two to three so any problem becomes solvable with civil society with autonomous creativity with uh, local imagination and then you can still think about how market and states you know, solutions and forms come into play, but you, you already broaden it. Uh, and the second shift um, that I think is very important is like, you know, where do we think value comes from? And as long as you think value comes from the market, you're very limited in what you can do because you can only manage managing what's existing mm. and live from the crumbs. It's once you start saying, well, no, you know, value is what we value so you you claim value sovereignty they can, you can say well these people are creating value and these people are creating value and you can you know it's just the the, the realm of possibilities opens up mm. you know and i think that hopefully <laughs> stimulates imagination mm. um, 
I think the biggest challenge now is uh, is the reactivity that is in, in used by social media, right? I have it in my own life. I really have to be careful because you can spend so much time reacting to in, to input. Mm. And so, how do you make the space, you know, where you can just think, mm. you know? Mm, mm. Yeah, it's, I see that as a big challenge for our society. Huge. Yeah. And, yeah. and can you tell a little bit about what the work you're doing in Ghent? So I was asked by the city itself, by the mayor and, and the director of strategy of the city to, first of all, map urban commons. So these are commons-oriented civic initiatives. So it, uh, in order to be in my map, if you, if you like, you would have to have a commons, a shared resource. And we noticed that it went from 50 to 500 in 10 years. And then we worked on, you know, what do they want? So what, what, are the com what, are the, what do the commoners want so that the city can ev eventually react and support these initiatives? And then we looked at institutional design. So how can public commons cooperation occur? Mm -hmm. And we came up with a few things like uh, commons accords, which is inspired by the Italian experience where they have this regulation in Bologna mm. so it allows recognition of the commons which is very important because otherwise they can just send the police uh, the second thing is uh, the notion of contributory democracy uh, which requires some explanation so it's basically about um, so you have a democratic mandate as a, as a city right you, you're elected and you say we want an ecological transition um, and then you want to be participatory, so you create a food transition council. But you, you have to invite in the big players, which may actually don't want a transition, right? So you get what is called predatory delay. The third step is, well, there are actually citizens carrying out a mandate. They are doing what we say we want, and therefore they have legitimacy and have a voice, because they're showing us the way. And so this is for me then a way to integrate the commoners and the pioneering initiatives, the ones that are really bringing down thermodynamic costs, you know, lowering the footprint, producing good food with a, a lot less waste and, and, mm. and, and, uh, and energy, but also social outcomes. And so the people are actually doing it in the context of market and state failure, get their place in the institution. And, and then their their example can you know become inspiration mm -hmm. for a more generalization of these solutions. And have you, you've seen the process since you started it as something that that unlocks imagination or invites imagination. It sort of it, it opens up. Well, it's important for people. You know, most of these people think that they're just doing marginal things against against the stream. And that way, it also limits their imagination because they think, oh, we're just doing it. You know, for ourselves. Mm. Um, once you see that you're part of a broader movement and that you're recognized by society, it gives you a lot of, a lot more moral strength mm. to mm. to continue and to, you know, to higher to increase your level of ambition. Mm. You know, we're, we're doing this for the world. We're doing this uh, to change our city. You know, it's just not just like one little thing, but mm. you have um, a bigger. It's a bigger narrative. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Do you need to go in? I think they're just uh, everybody in today. I think we can take five minutes because John Tucker speaks at, uh, fifth, at 45. Okay. It's up to you. Okay. Uh, um, 
one of the questions I've asked everybody that I've interviewed for this book is that if yeah. you had been elected as the Prime Minister of Belgium and you had run on a platform of make Belgium imaginative again and you felt that actually you needed to we needed the imagination to be back in the rather than having a national innovation strategy right we need a national imagination strategy in terms of education and policy policy making and so on and so on what might you do in your first few few weeks in office well one of the things that I really like that's happening today is you know the the maker movement yeah uh, because one of the problems in the West has been the split between thinking and doing you know Descartes and everything mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that we now have people who are thinking about what they want to do and how to do it, rather than doing it, then reflecting on their action, I think is like an anthropological revolution. Mm. So I would make this a new model, you know, just open up universities to making, to maker spaces, to um, and. Um, I, I know this is not a direct answer, but I just I want to make sure you have this. <laughs> uh, it's a notion of circular finance. Circular finance. Yes. So if you can prove to me that your activity lowers the human footprint, lowers the dynamic and social costs, then I'm going to share the benefits with you and finance your transition. So if you if you have a community land trust like in France, Terre des Liens which demonstrably diminishes depollution costs and health costs in the department, then that money that is saved in negative externalities can be used to finance positive transition. And just look at it systematically, from mm. mobility, housing. Uh, and the next thing I would do is job creation, right? Um, we have the Brahmanic left, educated people with cultural capital, but not necessarily money. And then we have the merchant right. But there are people without both. And they're the ones suffering and they're the ones voting for parties that are destroying our democracy. Mm. So I think we need a massive job. And I know people don't like the words jobs. You know, I don't want a job myself personally, but I think a lot of people do. It's a good word, I think. And um, so, uh, you know, so um, create jobs to regenerate the planet. Mm. You know, um, so if you want 100% organic food in a city like Ghent for five million meals a year, you can hire 15 farmers. You can have a zero carbon transport system, and you can have cooks. And just to have 100% organic food, we need 12% of the people in the countryside. Six times more people. Mm. So this is the kind of thing we sh- we need to be doing. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it's uh, so does your you know it's it's given what the world that we have in front of us at the yeah. moment and what the world could be, you're you're bringing a very imag- and there's a lot of imagination. To yes, how you're I, looking I, at I think I have too much imagination. <laughs> That's what my wife says. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, but yeah. Where where do you think that has come from? Do you think you had a, uh, an imaginative education? I, you know where, what? Where, how did you cultivate that? I think I, I was a very lonely child. I was an only child. So, you know, my biggest enemy was boredom. And if you're bored, you know, you have time to imagine. So I, I think that emptiness 
paradoxically became the richness. Yeah, I was going to say you said it was your greatest enemy, but it sounds like it was also your greatest friend. In yeah, some exactly. Ways as well, yeah. yeah, you know, it's the oyster uh, thing, right? So you have the grain of sand in the oyster, which creates the pearl. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it's how you transform your suffering into some positive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes uh, your life successful, I think. Yeah, yeah. And so the other thing was, I was very weak. So. My intellectuality, my intellectually intellectuality became, you know, the only thing I could do to actually have a sense of self-worth. Yeah. So that's, I guess, the, okay. the two together. <laughs>